You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Connie Willis is an award-winning science fiction writer. Her newest novels are Blackout and All Clear. Thank you for joining me, Connie. (laughs) Hi, thank you. One of the things that you do so well in your novels is to take really ordinary people and put them in very extraordinary situations. And I'd like you to talk about how you create their perspectives in these fantastic places that they end up, which are fantastic only to them, but often based on real, solidly researched history. Right, uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I basically do what I do with the ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances because I, I just don't usually get villains. I don't, I don't know. I, somehow, I, I mean, I know there are villains out there. You see them every day. And I know that they make interesting stories. But I guess I don't, I feel like you have to understand what you're writing about. And what I really understand is this feeling of being caught in a world where you have so little control and and not nearly enough information. And um, you're trying to make decisions and do the best you can, even though the the odds are stacked against you because you don't have enough information and you're not prepared for this situation because nobody could really be prepared for it. And I consider that pretty much the human condition, you know. So, so to me, that's the natural thing to write about. And so I put people in, you know, I put them in World War II. I put them in the Middle Ages, in the middle of the Black Death. I put them in the middle of corporations where clearly no one knows what's going on. Uh, and I have bad things happen to them, which, which often are the stuff of tragedy, but I don't always do it as tragedy. Sometimes I do it as tragedy, and sometimes I do it as comedy. I mean, it's the same, same material. The, the, the person who's ill-equipped for what's about to befall them is the stuff of comedy as well as tragedy, I think. You know, one of the things I think you do very well is even when you're writing tragedy, it's not heavy-handed, and it's not uh, deeply, deathly upsetting. And So right. I'd like you to talk about uh, the way you craft a prose voice to handle um, difficult... Horrific things. Horrific things in a, in a manner that's readable and engaging for your audience. Oh, boy. Well, I, I think a lot of it... I mean, uh, everything I ever did, I learned from Shakespeare. Not very well, but I did try to learn from him. And he is wonderful at that. You know, he, he knows just when to pull back from the horror, when to wade in and when to pull back and is, is famous for things like the Porter scene in Macbeth where you're laughing out loud one minute and then horrified the next, or horrified, then laughing out loud, then horrified again. And, um, and I think that, to me, the reason I write so much comedy is because, because I think the ironic voice comes naturally to me. That's kind of how I see the world as a very, very ironic place, and the kinds of things that happen to me are are very ironic things. And so, um, and that is your best, I think, your best tool when you're writing about really ghastly things that are happening, because because uh, one of the things you notice if you do research into people who are living through horrific things is that humor is their salvation. It's either either they have either they're living in our world with a horrible job 
you know, my daughter's a forensic scientist, um, doctors in hospitals, all of those people have a lot of black humor and it's their only line of defense against the kinds of things they have to deal with every day. And, um, or if you're in a terrible time, you're living in the blitz, you're living through the black death, um, humor can be your only, you know, salvation. So I always think, and there are usually funny things that happen even in the midst of horror. <laughs> uh, not, not jokey, laugh out loud funny, but, but ironic. So I, th I think that's probably the best way to, <laughs> to handle it. I don't know, I, I, I have tried to research not just the facts and figures of, of the books that I do, but also what it would be like for the people. What, how would they actually feel? And uh, at one point when I was researching Blackout and All Clear, which is set in the Blitz, I had the opportunity to interview a whole bunch of, of um, women who had worked during the Blitz. So there are these elderly ladies, you know, and they're telling me stories about being ambulance drivers and rescue crew workers and anti-aircraft gun firers and things and oh they're all laughing and telling stories and remember when this happened and it's all very funny and I finally said you guys make it sound like the Blitz was really fun and they said you know it was we were young we were on our own for the first time in our lives and there were all these men and you're like Okay, of course, and that had, till that point, that had never really come through to me that I was forgetting these very important parts of the war, you know. Um, my uncle was killed horrifically at Guadalcanal. He was on a munition ship that blew up, and the remains are in Arlington in a mass grave, you know, so this is about as horrific as it gets. And after he died, my grandmother received a number of letters from his fiancés. And he had apparently been picking up fiancés everywhere he went, all over the <laughs> South Pacific. And she had to deal with this for years. And it struck her as very, very funny, which, and I'm sure it was very fun for him. <laughs> but, you know, uh, so it's got everything. It's got tragedy, it's got comedy, it's got, you know, um, the ordinariness of life, too. I mean, he was going on about his business even though the world was at war, you know, he was, he was a young guy on his own for the first time, and there were all these women, that to, and he got engaged to all of them, apparently. So, you know, I, I don't know. That's To me, that's the truest picture of the world. One of the things I think you do very well is to capture the lives and the feelings of ordinary people, even though they're in these extraordinary circumstances. And I really love that about aspect of your work, that even though you're writing in a genre of the fantastic, where there are spaceship caption, captains mm -hmm. and discoverers and explorers and inventors, you focus on the kind of the grunts and, and yeah. talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, most particularly in, in Blackout and All Clear, which is the most recent thing I've worked on, um, I looked at the war, and of course everybody writes about the generals, you know, and we're all very interested in the generals and the fighter pilots. I'm not saying I'm not interested in them. But in many ways, that was a war that was won by shop girls and maids and, and retired choir members at St. Paul's and, and unlikely heroes, you know. And those are the only people I can relate to. I really, I can't relate very well to fighter, fighter pilots and, and, you know, other traditional heroes because I don't know, I mean, I guess I know, I do know, I do know lots of heroes, but I don't, 
I don't understand quite how they work, that they're never afraid, that they that they're trained and they're ready for, for battle or whatever happens to come their way. And they're extraordinarily competent. And I relate much more to the incompetent people, the people who just, they're doing the best they can, you know, and they're in over their heads. And, and that's how I feel most of the time. So I think that's, their stories deserve to be told too. And the other big, besides Shakespeare, the other big influence on me was Robert Heinlein. And he, all of his juvenile novels um, have space that will travel and Starbeast and um, Rocket Ship Galileo and, and uh, Time for the Stars. All those people that he was writing about in his teenage novels were, they were all just ordinary kids. They weren't, they weren't the heroes. The heroes were in there, but they were in there as secondary characters. The main character was always some kid who just happened to have a spaceship land on him and get hauled off into the middle of nowhere and have space that will travel even the 10 year old girl is more competent than the hero is you know and that's who I always related to so you know you have a very interesting sense of uh, not only how to tell a story but what stories you to tell so I'd like you to talk about how the kinds of stories you tell influence the voice you take and as a writer when you're creating your prose, which is so much fun to read. It's, uh, you can just know a Connie Willis book the instant oh, you I'm pick it up. Oh, I'm happy to hear that. It's really fun to read them. So I'd like you to talk about creating that, uh, that inimitable sense of Connie Willis and how she creates her stories. Well, boy, that's a toughie, because I don't think writers know very much about how they create their stories. I think people tell them later what they did, but I'm not sure. I don't... I, one thing I was really struck by, my husband and I have this hobby of reading the WPA travel guides that were written in the, in the 30s. You know, they, they had one written for each state. And <clears throat> we love these. They're the best travel guides ever written. And the reason is because they were written by actual authors that were hired by the WPA in the middle of the Depression. Just like all those post office murals were done by famous artists, you know. All these travel guides were written by famous writers, Zora Neale Thurston and um, uh, John Steinbeck and people like that, you know. So, and their names are not on the books. And so it's impossible to find out who wrote what. And, and I think what they did was assign different parts of books to different people. But the thing they all have in common is they know how, not, not how to tell a story. They all know how to tell a story. But they also know what's an interesting story to tell. So in the one about Kansas, where you would ordinarily get, you know, the wheat crop this year was 650,000 bushels, you know, I mean, <laughs> that's the usual travel guide. Um, instead, they've got this great story about this town in western Kansas where the be-all and end-all of life was to be the county seat, you know. If you were the county seat, then that's where business came and the trains came and all that. So it was very important. So. They have all these stories about <laughs> how in the middle of the night they would come and kidnap the county assessor and all of his, you know, books, the, the books of the county, and uh, gallop him across to the next county line into their town so they could have the county seat. And then how the other town would come and raise a posse and go after him and bring him back. And it was just like nobody else tells these stories. It's like they instantly knew which stories were really cool to tell, you know. And I have always, you know, I think that's what, as a writer, you learn how to do over a lifetime. You start looking for the 
for the fascinating stories, for the right stories to tell, and picking those out from all the other junk that's in the way. You know, because there's, like, especially World War II, oh my gosh, you, you can't, I mean, there's a billion stories of World War II, and which ones do you tell? You know, they're all, they're all fascinating. But, but you've got to somehow figure out the perfect story and the one that, that hits right to the bone. And I'll never forget reading about uh, a young, she was like 17 years old, and she was a um, warden, an air raid warden, and she was terrified. And she was not terrified of dying. She was not terrified of being blown up or anything. She was terrified that she would be called upon to be heroic and that she would blow it. You know, this was her great fear. And then she writes in her diary, wonderful, wonderful day. Last night, there was a parachute mine and a baby exploded on the pavement in front of me. And I did great. And that story has everything. It has, it has a complete reversal of what you expect her response to be. It, it's ho horrible beyond imagining. And yet, you totally understand that in that kind of situation, you, your, all of your priorities, all of your ethics, all of your values get turned totally upside down. And I thought, the war is right there. The entire war is right there in that little tiny story, you know. Every war. Every war. Every war is right there in that story. And I and she's seventeen, you know. And so, you know, I, I, that's what I'm always looking for is all those fascinating stories, you know, and which ones to tell. It's you know they're out there. It's just hard to find them. So. <laughs> wow, that's great. You know, it's interesting. There's been a a series of novels about the Blitz. And I'm wondering if you'd care to comment about why we might be interested in the Blitz now. I don't know. It's just really interesting. <laughs> it's like asking you why you like chocolate. I mean, of course you like chocolate. Of course you like Harrison Ford. It, these things are so obvious, you shouldn't have to answer them. Um, the Blitz is fascinating, I think. And, it's, and it, maybe it suits our time, you know, where suddenly civilians find themselves on the front lines, you know, mm -hmm. uh, all over the world, and where everybody feels ill-equipped to handle whatever's about to come, you know? And, and I think, like with, say, the Boston bombing, people were, they're, they're just overwhelmed by the, the fact that we, people were running toward the victims and, and the first response was to help. And I think people are, envious and hoping that that will be them, you know, hoping they're not the person who panics and runs away, although I never quite feel in moments of catastrophe that you're entirely responsible. A lot of it has to do with what's going on in your <laughs> chemical, you know, makeup at that second, because um, you're really in shock. Everybody's in shock. But um, so proud of them, you know, and I, I think we cling on to these stories of, of, um, of the positives from these horrific things that happen. Uh, everybody has just been so in love with the hero who rescued the three girls from Cleveland, you know, the hostage situation in Cleveland, or kidnapping situation in Cleveland. And, and I think, you know, and he, and he was perfect. He was funny. You know, he said, I knew when a white girl, a pretty white girl is flinging herself into the arms of a black man, something is wrong. So I knew I better call 911. So he was funny and he was charming and he, but he was all of us really hope that we're him. We hope that 
when that happens to us. We'll put down our McDonald's, as he said he did, and 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 act as bravely as he did. I think we we're always looking for the positive stories in that. So maybe the Blitz holds a lot of that. You know, we see how brave the British were and how they held out so strongly against Hitler, and maybe that gives us some kind of some kind of courage to do the same thing. I just was reading uh, an essay by Nick Hornby, who's one of my favorite writers, and he was talking about uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, and he said, you know, I think, let me, I, I won't quote, quote this correctly, but he said something about, I, I know that it's, that it's the writer's job to push the horrific till you almost fall apart, but I think it's also the author's job to off, offer comfort and hope for the future, and I, I think the stories about the Blitz are stories of comfort and hope, you know. However, the personal ones end, the, they won. They fought off a bunch of nobodies, a bunch of shop girls <laughs> and retired choir singers fought off Hitler and the biggest military machine ever known till that time, and they beat him. And, you know, that's a great story. Who wouldn't love that story, you know? Especially as told by you. <laughs> now, uh, one of the things you do as well is you work uh, in a lot of novella forms. And I do. You have I love a that. lot of fun with your novellas. I do. From Subterranean Press and uh -huh. all those uh, great uh, J.K. Potter illustrations. Yeah. Uh -huh. I really dig that. Do you, could you talk about creating those? And is, do you get to collaborate with Potter on that stuff? I don't. Oh. I don't. I know nothing about art, so it's just as well that I don't get to collaborate with any of my illustrators. I know nothing. Um, and I, many of those stories appeared originally in Asimov's magazine and then mm -hmm. were brought out again by Subterranean. Uh, I love working at the, at the shorter lengths. I adore that. For one thing, the, sometimes the story needs to be at le that length. It couldn't hold the novel together, but it's, it's good for that length. But, but also, I, I just think it's a great, a great length to work at. And I get to indulge all of my interests. I get... Um, I got to write a story about a robot who wanted to be a rocket, which if I were a robot, that is what I would want to be. And, um, and one about Mencken coming back from the grave, which this was, <laughs> that story came from the fact that about twice a day I say, where is Mencken when we need him? We need him now back from the grave. So, you know, that was just a wish fulfillment story. I brought him back from the grave because I needed him. Um, and I've done several, I do a lot of Christmas stories. I've done, um, I did one about aliens who land and then just, they don't say take me to your leader. They don't try to kill us. They don't try to vaporize the planet. They don't try to save us from ourselves, which we need saving badly. Uh, they just stand there and glare. Which, if I was an alien, that is what I would do. That is definitely what I would do. They land in Denver. I would have them, I guess, probably really land in DC at this moment and glare, just glare like your Aunt Judith that disapproves of everything and you shrivel and shrink. I think DC could use some of that right now. Well, I think it's getting it from uh, the science fiction genre. <laughs> Good. Good. Uh, I, I, one of the things I think that you do really well in your uh, science fiction work is to uh, discuss and externalize things that are difficult to discuss and external, you know, talk about. And I'd like you to talk about take, using the elements of the fantastic to transform uh, 
feelings and ideas and notions that are not easily discussed in public in a way that's engaging and, and yet when we walk away from it, we go, huh. I think that's one of the fabulous strengths of fantasy and science fiction. I, I have loved that about it since the very beginning, that you can, instead of direct, well, Rod Serling was one of the first people to figure it out, you know, he, he uh, was writing all these very political teleplays about really serious issues of the day, and he couldn't get any of them on television. They were all too controversial. The idea of the McCarthy witch hunts and, and um, um, the, the horrific direction we were going and you know heading straight for nuclear war and all these different things, and racism at the time stuff. And he couldn't get any of them on the network. So then he just sidestepped a little, <laughs> invented Twilight Zone, did exactly the same stories, only with an element of the fantastic in them. And suddenly, you know, everybody who's ever watched The Twilight Zone knows it about it's about McCarthyism and racism and our steady march toward nuclear war. <laughs> and you're like, and nobody said a word. And he realized that he had pulled up one of the great con games of all time. And I think I think that's one aspect of it. It's a way to discuss issues that people if you try to discuss them directly, people's blast doors will just slam shut. They they already know what they think they think, and so they're not gonna listen to you. And so that's one part. But the other part I think is that you can do you can look at a at an issue from such a greater complexity than you could ordinarily. Uh, I did a story called early on called The Sidon in the Mirror. And I wrote it because I had been on it. I had been watching a, a talk show on TV. I think it was Donahue. And he had these two identical twins who'd been separated at birth. And you know that story where they have them and they, all, they smoke the same cigarettes and they both married someone named Betty and they both drive a blue Honda and they're both electrical engineers and all that. It's really creepy. And on this show, he, had these, he was talking about all these similarities and stuff. And then he said, so what do you guys think about free will? And they both leaned back in exactly the same way and smiled in exactly the same way and crossed their arms in exactly the same way and then said, of course we believe in free will, in the same voice. And I was just totally creeped out. So then I got very nervous <laughs> about who are we and, and do we have free will? Do we just think we have free will? Is, are our genes running everything? Do, things that we don't even know about. So if I had written a modern day story about that, I'd have had to write about identical twins and I'd have had to, and people would have challenged this part and that part. And what I really wanted to talk about was free will. So I created an alien who did not have emotional free will. He was like a, an emotional chameleon. So like a chameleon turns pink when it's around something pink, he, he picked up the emotions of whoever was standing next to him and became like that person and had no control over that. Or the question was, did he have any control over that at all? And then I was able to not only talk about the complexities of that issue in a way I couldn't have if I confronted it directly, but also I wasn't sure what I thought. You know, and so in the story, I was able to like figure out what I thought too by writing the story, and it was then a self interrogation, a self interrogation, and a self like I felt like I knew a lot more about what I thought after I finished the story 
than I did when I started the story. So I think you teach yourself as a writer what's going on too and, and how you really feel about things. Because um, any, anything else that you're writing is just, you know, it's propaganda. It's your, whether it's good propaganda or bad propaganda, it's propaganda. Dickens is not at his best when he knows he wants to get rid of the slums. <laughs> He's at his best when he loses himself in the story and then you find out what he really thinks about poverty and what he really thinks about these situations these people are in. And that's when he's best. And that, of course, is much more effective at getting rid of the slums than any of his intention to get rid of the slums. So. As, but that's not just me. That's every, I think that's all writers. I think that's what they do the best. So. One of the things you do well is uh, we, we love your prose. I mean, your prose is so wonderful and light and fleet of foot. Uh, it only looks that way. <laughs> <laughs> how does it, how, how do you terrible. get that? It's terrible. Uh, anybody who's seen me work, I work a lot at Starbucks, and so it's right up there. You can just see it. It's, uh, you know, it's more scratch outs per page than there are words. I frequently, out of pity for my poor secretary, will go back and try to write a clean copy because she's going to find four words on this entire page, but she's got to search through all the markouts. Um, this is in longhand? It's all in longhand. Yeah, I write my novels longhand. Wow. I write everything longhand. Well, I don't, I don't write my speeches longhand or articles longhand, but any fiction I do. In Starbucks. In Starbucks. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> or the library or wherever. So. That's so interesting. Now, uh, can you tell us what you're working on now? Yes. Um, I, I am working on a novel about telepathy. I know there are lots of novels about telepathy. Science yes. fiction has done many, many stories and novels, but they're all pretty grim. And uh, this is a romantic comedy about telepathy and a social comedy. So uh, I think telepathy is like the worst idea ever. Oh. I don't think we really want to know. It's a cesspool out there, you oh. know? You don't want to know what's really going on in somebody else's brain. And I certainly don't want anybody to know what's going on in my mind at any given moment. So I think this would be like the worst catastrophe that could happen to you. So so I do it to my poor heroine. Who's done it. Well, in, in my book, there, there's, uh, there's a new little tiny, teeny brain surgery thing that they can do. Very non-dangerous or as non-dangerous as brain surgery can be. And when you can, and you have it done with your your partner, and um, then the two of you are sort of like simpatico. You you are not te telepathic or anything. You're just empathetic, and you can pick up on each other's, you know, feelings, so that you you're not going to fight about what movie to see, and you're not going to you know surgical marriage. Like, surgical marriage, and you're not going to find you're not going to wonder why your your spouse or your partner's upset, you know, because you will you will ha you will sense that. And of course it's a terrible, terrible idea. And everyone tries to talk my poor heroine out of it. And her boyfriend is the one who wants to do it. And uh, so then she does it and then she comes through the surgery and when she wakes up she is n not an empathic. She is full blown telepathic and she is not connected to her boyfriend. She's connected to someone it's not good. This is not good. So. Sounds like a lot of fun. I think it's going to be fun. <laughs> My so. favorite and most, I thought actually that the most horrifying scene of Scanners was the scene at the near the beginning 
where the telepath is sitting in the room and all the people walk in and as they walk in he hears more and more thoughts just till it becomes this right would be out of time it, oh, it would be really terrible it would be intolerable and it, you know a lot of times in, in stories about telepathy they'll say oh the person becomes a crime fighter because you know they they know that the person's planning to murder someone we plan to murder people all the time. Everyone, <laughs> yeah. everyone wants to murder someone. And it, there's, how do you sort the, the real, the, the intentional thoughts from the just random everyday, you know, horrible thoughts? You would be, I think, horrified. And I think the more, the more uptight and controlled and the people who present a smoother face to society, the disconnect would be much greater because, you know, they're, they appear to be serene at all times, and really underneath there's a seething mass of whatever. So yeah, so but I don't think most people don't usually go the romantic comedy route. So I think I'm good. <laughs> well, just so you know, so. I I just checked yesterday. Uh, Seething.com is available. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. Good. <laughs> Seething.com. Excellent. I like that. Sounds like <laughs> something we all need. Now, Connie, uh, one thing that that interests me about your work is that. We have, in the past uh, 20 years, gone from uh, gone through essentially many of the checkpoints of science fiction. Uh, right. Of science fiction, we have lived through times that right. we thought science fiction, you know, had predicted. Right. This is the science fiction world. We've got iPads and our and our smartphones, and yeah, it's true. It's true. We're living in the future. <laughs> As a writer, do you find that that kind does that help you or hurt you in terms of your ability to uh, come up with new uh, right. notions of the fantastic? Well, it can, it, it can really screw you up because uh, I did, when I wrote Remake um, a long time ago, it was about the electronic revolution in the movies and how CGI and all those things. And when I started the story, there wasn't, there were just the bare glimmerings of CGI. And I wrote as fast as I could, and I still was not, by the time I was done, the changes were radically different. And all the way through, I was like, what am I going to do? I, I would say, okay, they can do this, but not this. Because if you if you can do everything, you don't have a story, you know, so they can't do this. And then I'd read an issue of cinematography today and it would say that, yeah, you can already do that. So I'd go, okay, well, they can do this, this, and this, but they can't do this. And no, same thing. You know, it just kept outstripping me. And so finally I thought, what would you throw, what would slow things down here? And the answer, of course, was lawyers. Get the lawyers involved. So I put Fred Astaire into litigation and left him there for the entire story, which was good. And then I figured out ways to slow down, which were based on human nature, because human nature doesn't change. And it's the one constant in all these crazy you know, changes. But it is, it is a problem. My telepathy novel, I plan my, my heroine works for a telecom company, which is attempting to come up with a new kind of you know, revolutionary smartphone. And I'm going to do all of that last. I'm just leaving blanks and spaces. And then I will, at the last possible moment, I'll see where we are. I'll try to extrapolate five or six steps ahead and pray that we aren't those five or six steps ahead by the time the book comes out. But it, it can be a problem with that. But, but human nature never changes. We were, my husband and I spent the last two weeks watching, we're going to England. So we've been watching all the Jane Austen stuff again. We know all these people. We know all these people. We don't know nearly enough 
Mr. Darcy's and Elizabeth Bennett's. We know a lot of Mr. Collins's and a lot of Mrs. Bennett's and a lot of, you know, they. the reason she's still so successful is because those people are still here. They're still here. It's so maddening. They're so awful, and they're still here. And I think, I think that's where science fiction has to really focus its... You know, no, the technology will change, but our reactions to it will not. And uh, the world may change, but our humanness will stay the same, and we will muddle through as best we can. I've been speaking with Connie Willis. Her latest novels are Blackout and All Clear. Which and is really one novel. That's really just two halves of one novel. Well, tell us a little bit about that. It's, it was a novel that was supposed to be one volume, and then it just kind of oh, expanded, like The Blob, with Steve McQueen in it. And um, so it was too big to publish as one, and so it was published in two halves, but it is one book. Is anybody so. considering publishing it as one? I hope so. I really do hope so. That it's really, it would be very fat. But um, I'm, I hope that happens at some point because it is one novel, and I'm tired of telling everybody it's one novel. I know it looks like two, but it's really one. So. Well, let's get Subterranean Press on the on okay the, on, on, on the job on the job yeah. here, Bill. God. Yeah, we're ringing for you. Yeah, yeah, I would like to see it as one book. I've been speaking with Connie Willis. Uh, she has a forthcoming novel on telepathy. Thank you for joining me, Connie. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.